Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I'm thankful that I can give this morning a sermon amidst a season at our church, at Gospel Community, that has been strong in the subject that we're going to talk about. See, early numbers for our 2021 giving and tithes and everything that's come in has been extremely strong as it's always been throughout the life of our church. We had about $212,000 come in uh, over and against $166,000 in expenses. And so what that means is a $46,000 uh, surplus by God's grace and His mercy that we have in front of us. And so I thank God that GCC has so valued the kingdom work that they've given with us generously time and time again. Early on in our process, when we were planning a church, we would talk to people around that would come and visit with us, and we would hear all kinds of complaints that people would have about the church. Not our church, but the church generally. And one of the, the top amongst those was when pastors would ask for money. Uh, we know of one church, uh, it's not in this area, but another church in another part of the country that asked their people for a 40% increase in their tithe to pay for a building program. We kind of hear these kind of stories all the time. And it's the, the thing that we hear back all the time is how tired people get of being asked for money. And truth be told, there's a two-way street there. Sometimes churches can ask for money in the wrong ways, and sometimes people in the pew can be too sensitive about money because they value it too much. See, I wonder if we might start to speak of money differently rather than twisting arms to, give, uh, to get some people to give something to something they don't really value. It might be more expedient and less manip- manipulative to simply ask What do you value? See, our money says a lot about us, doesn't it? The way we spend, the way we save, the way we keep. There was a a study that came out. It was on Drudge Report this week. It was a study from some organization. It said Americans think about or worry about money on average six times a day. And oddly enough, the younger you get, the more likely that is to increase. In fact, they said amongst the millennial generation that you're increasingly more likely to uh, look for a partner in marriage that carries along your spending habits than someone who's physically attractive to you. That's a shocker to me. I thought that was very interesting. See, like so many other things, our money reveals the state of our heart. The self-reliant person builds his 401k and he plans a way for retirement. The, the person who's impetuous and kind of flighty, they spend their money as quickly as it hits their wallet. That was me, right? Well, what if I told you your money could be a means by which Jesus shapes your desire for him? What if I told you this morning that our money, our finances, the things we own, our cars and our houses, all of these things could be leveraged for God's purpose in the kingdom, not just outside of us, but within us. That God can create the desires for a thirst for the kingdom of God based upon how we give. See, our big idea this morning is that God's grace 
equips us both to give and to receive. God's grace equips us to be a gracious giver and a gracious recipient. And what we'll see this morning is we're going to see Paul put on display a gracious reception of a gift that the Philippians had given to him in verses 10 through 13. And then we're going to follow up on verses 14 through 20. We're going to see uh, really that the Philippians give as gracious partners. And then we'll see the kind of conclusion of the text in verses 21 through 23. And I want to dive in this morning into this topic that, that God would open our hearts and our minds that we would be able to hear with fresh ears this morning. So let me pray to that end. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to hear from you. Even on a topic so sensitive as our money, Lord, we want you to be Lord. We want you to be honored in us. So we ask that you would do that now for your glory and praise. Amen. Paul starts in verses 10 through 13, and he receives with grace. Look at verse 10 with me. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul gives us an initial statement in verse 10, and then he starts to qualify these phrases. And this is actually going to kind of define our, our sections here, is that Paul wants to get to the nuance, the specificity of his thankfulness. Uh, in verse 10, he starts off and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He rejoiced in the Lord greatly over the Philippians' gift. If we backed up to verse 4, he's called these Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And now he's kind of giving a clinic about how exactly that happens. He rejoices in the Lord greatly that these Philippians have chosen to support him. But what was the cause of this rejoicing? Well, we've already mentioned it. They revived their concern by giving. The Philippians seem to have this history with Paul. As we get later in our passage, we're going to see that they had a history of giving and supporting to him in verse 15 and elsewhere. And even when no one else supported Paul, the Philippians were there and actively supporting. But somehow they stopped giving, and, and Paul highlights this. And this is kind of the first clarification that Paul wants to get to. He wants to kind of provide a little bit of nuance in the second half of verse 10. It says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's not slamming them for stopping their support. He's actually saying, you had no opportunity. You desired to support me, but you couldn't. You lacked opportunity. We can only imagine what this means. Imagine Paul as he's traveling from city to city to city, and he's miles and miles away from the church at Philippi. He's hard to hunt down. It's hard to know exactly what he needs. And they didn't have opportunity to support him. But now the opportunity presents itself. Paul is stuck in prison. He needs, uh, his needs and his location are obvious. It's easy to hunt him down. And so they start up their support again. But this is another issue that Paul wants to clarify. This issue of goods, of money, of wealth. How does he understand it? 
So look at what he says in verse 11. Not that I, he's going to, again, provide a different clarification. Not that I am speaking of being in need. See, Paul tells us that he has lived in both need and abundance. He says this three times throughout these short few verses. He says that he's been brought low and he knows what it is to abound. He's faced plenty and hunger. He's had abundance and need. And if we know the life of Paul, we know that this is the case, right? And in Acts chapter 28, he's on a ship that's heading out to Rome. He's a prisoner, and he's stranded. There's a shipwreck. He's stranded there on the Isle of Malta with all of the nationals having nothing. And we contrast that with what happens in the city of Philippi in Acts 16, where Paul sees the conversion of a woman named Lydia who's wealthy, and he goes and stays in this lavish house with her for his time and his stay during there. He's lived with plenty. He's lived with nothing. He knows both of those things, need and abundance. And so Paul is highlighting that his circumstance is inconsequential to his contentedness. Paul's circumstance is inconsequential to his contentedness. Even as the Philippians have given him a financial gift, this is not the cause of his rejoicing. They've supported him financially, but he wants to be clear that the money is not the thing that makes him rejoice. How was Paul so steady in the midst of these topsy-turvy financial circumstances? How was Paul so contented in the midst of this constant difficulty of having and not having? He goes on to tell us that he's learned, in verse 11, he's learned contentment. Paul tells us this three times. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And then in verse 12 again, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Paul is telling us he's learned something. And more specifically, he has learned to be content through a secret, as it were, in verse 12. This word content is kind of a strange word. We have an understanding of what it means, but this is actually the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And it's really kind of a compound word, a a combination where we take two words and we kind of slam them together. And what we can understand it to be is to be strong in oneself, or as John Piper translates it, he says to rule oneself. See, the Stoics would have used this word. The Stoics were these philosophers in ancient Greece that, that believed through the kind of just the, uh, the self-will and the effort that we could control our emotions, that we could kind of, uh, you know, have uh, control of ourselves. And so Paul grabs this word from the Stoic philosophers, and he's going to kind of fill it with meaning here in our passage. And he's saying, hey, I have learned the secret of being content. I've learned the secret of my self-rule. I've learned how to rule over my emotions, to rule over my thoughts, to be content in little and much. I know how to do that. How? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This morning, brothers and sisters, this is not just a verse for Tim Tebow's eye black This is not just a verse for athletes. This is a verse for those of us who face difficulty and trials that Christ strengthens us. I can do 
all things. I can endure all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. See, the secret to Paul's strength in the midst of these circumstances is there. It's Christ. It's the verse that we are supposed to summon when we want to do great things. We want to sell the, the pole vault record at our high school. We want to launch a new Fortune 500 company. We want to eat the blazing wings at BW3. We can do all things through Christ, right? But the all things of this verse isn't referring to individual tasks as much as it is seasons and contexts. See, the context here is showing us that the idea all things must refer to the varied circumstances which Paul has faced, plenty and hunger, abundance and need of verse 12. See, Paul's secret to contentment in any circumstance is Christ's strength. And as his spirit resides in us, we are strengthened to endure difficulty and thrive in abundance. See, we pull away from this section for a second. We just realize that receiving well, receiving gifts well, is filled with faith in Jesus. I don't know if you feel like that. We just came through the holiday season, right? And someone hands you a gift, and it's a good gift, and it's gracious and kind, and, and you feel guilty because they spent too much money, and you feel awkward. How do we be gracious receptors? See, the truth is that our sinful hearts lead us to be sinful receptors. There's any number of ways that we can receive without grace. We can be greedy. Greed is that constant longing for more than what we need. And before we start to think that it's only the rich that are greedy, remember that even in our poverty, we want things we don't have. And so we also fall pray to the sin of greed. It's ingratitude. It's the lack of thankfulness for the things that we have that God has blessed us with. It's self-righteousness, the idea that we've earned everything we have. I heard the story recently of a, of a business owner that he made the statement, I've earned everything I had. And I thought about that for a second. I thought, that's not true. It's not true. You've inherited so much. Your employees have done so much work. You, you were raised. Your parents gave you a good education. They, they gave you all the things that you have. You have so many thousands of people that you're indebted to for your success. No one has made or created their own self. So we just twist and distort this idea of receiving so that it's all truncated on me and my desire. I want more. I deserve what I have. I don't give thanks for what I have. See, a Christian worldview allows us to see God's grace in whatever we possess and in whatever we lack. It's in the book of Lamentations that uh, Jeremiah writes, it's not uh, from the mouth, excuse me, is it not from the mouth of God, the Most High, that both good and bad come? Is it James chapter 1, verse 17, where James says, every good thing given, every perfect gift comes from above, with whom, uh, the, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. See, the truth is this morning, if there's a good gift that we have in our life, a, we have it. If there's something that's not good, it hasn't been given by a good God. See, God has given us everything we have, and he's withheld everything we don't. 
Everything you have, be it the car in your driveway or the tumor in your stomach, is from an almighty God. And everything you don't have, whether it be the car in your driveway or the tumor in your stomach, is also not from God. See, the strength of Christ then is sufficient to move us through any and all circumstances. Notice that's what Paul's saying here in these verses. In any and every circumstance, verse 12, or all things of verse 13. See, we might step back, and, step back and ask, how? What does this strength look like? How are we strengthened by Christ to endure these circumstances? Well, honestly, we'll pick that up toward the end of our, our time together here today. But I want to move into this second section See, Paul isn't done. He's not just talking about how we receive well. He wants to talk about the gift. And he's going to address the givers of the gift in verses 14 through 20, these Philippians. He's going to talk to them about how they have given with the graciousness and kindness that they have. And so in Philippians 14, or 4, 14 through 23, the Philippians give as gracious partners. Look at verse 14 with me. Yes, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. See, Paul recognizes their partnership in verses 14 through 16. Notice the togetherness of these verses, right? He, he uses these words like share and partner. In fact, they come from the same Greek terms. They're partners with Paul. He even spells out the details in verse 16. You sent me help for my needs once and again. On at least two occasions, these Philippians have sent financial gifts to Paul as he's on the mission field. And yet again, they've sent that to him while he's in prison. See, Paul sees these Philippians as co-owners of this ministry endeavor that he's undertaken in fact, he kind of opened the letter. If we go back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 3, or uh, 3 through 5, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, these Philippians were with him from the beginning. They were side by side with him, providing financial support, being partners defense, in the defense of the gospel. I was reading a commentary this week, and, and Gordon Fee kind of points out about this passage that something we might miss is in early first century culture, there was this Greco-Roman view of friendship. And friendship involved, if you were going to strike up a friendship with someone else, you would come and bring a gift to them. And if they were to reciprocate, they would come and bring a gift to you. Now, some of you are saying, that's the kind of friendship I can get behind. I need more friends. But in this passage, what we're seeing is we're seeing a one-sided display of friendship. Paul is receiving these gifts, but where is his reciprocity? And what we see in verses 17 through 20 is how exactly Paul sees that he's giving back to them. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul gives back through faith. That's what he says. Paul's seeking the clarity again in this section. He's trying to define exactly what he's trying to say. And he doesn't seek the gift, but the fruitfulness for the Philippians' account. That is, they share their finances with Paul, and Paul shares his fruitfulness with them. See, right now, by nature of giving to Gospel Community Church, whether you realize it or not, you're participating in some 15 to 20 church plants through Harbor Network. You are financially supporting three different missionaries. You are helping sustain the work of Gospel Community Church. You are, uh, have participated in these works as partners when you give tithes and offerings to us as a church. And look how Paul describes these gifts in verse 18. That, uh, he says there in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. They've met his need and then some. I have uh, received this plus, right? I, I've, it's abounding in wealth. Paul is describing uh, just the, the, the overabundance of the gift. It's not even just tied to the gift. When he says and more, he's recognizing that it goes beyond the financial aspect. Secondly, in verse 18, he says that these offerings are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You might say, what? Is Paul sending like potpourri? What's going on? If you go back to Genesis chapter 8, after God floods the world, Noah comes off the boat, and the first thing he does is build an altar and make a sacrifice to God. And the text says that the aroma of this sacrifice reaches the nostrils of the Lord. God smells the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice and promises to never again curse the ground or kill every living creature. See, so what Paul is describing here is this worshipful response that, that he's not making atonement for sins because it's tied to the sacrifice. This is actually probably a, a reference to a different kind of sacrifice, the, the, the offering that is uh, kind of an aroma that lifts up and wafts up to the nostrils of God that brings praise and honor to him that satisfies him. And Paul's kind of tapping into this Old Testament imagery saying, your offering, your gift is so pleasing to Christ. But I love that that's not it. And in verse 19 through 20, Paul really gets into this idea of how he returns the gift. You have that Seinfeld episode, the re-gifter, right? The person who gets a gift and sends it back to someone else. Here's Paul describing how he returns the gift. And my God, verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So look at how Paul describes this reciprocation. See, Paul doesn't plan on himself reciprocating the gift. He's not going to make something, some nice little craft, and send it back. He's, he's not going to send a card. He's not going to reciprocate in any way. He's trusting that God will be the one that reciprocates on his behalf, my God, verse 19, will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
See, Paul trusts that God will bless these Philippians amidst their partnership with him. And his confidence is stated at the end of verse 19, according to his riches in glory in Christ. How does Paul expect for these guys to get paid back, as it were, through spiritual blessings? might not be financial. They might not have the bank account. They didn't uh, send money off for the Learjet of Paul so that they could receive a blessing in their bank account. I don't even know who I'm talking about there, but you might. Now, he's talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places as that aroma of the sacrifice that's pleasing and acceptable wafts into the nostrils of God. It pleases God. It builds this kind of account in the heavens that that says that we are living out the priority of the kingdom and faith. And, And Paul is drawing attention to this idea that they will have everything, every need there's provided according to the riches of glory in Christ get a little confused on needs, don't we? I need a car, so therefore I'm going to buy a Lamborghini. I need a guitar, so I better get that 1968 Fender Strat, right? We get confused. But notice that the promise here is, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, Fundamentally, if you and I don't draw another breath and our faith is in Christ, we're fully provided for in Christ, aren't we? That God has already provided for our needs through the death of His own Son. That He's stripped us of our sinfulness. That He has given us righteousness in Christ. And now there's no need beyond that fundamental need that's been provided for us. See, what we see here is that as Paul has described in verse 18, that he has received full payment and more, he's describing the the return of the abundance in verse 19 to these Philippians. My God will supply every need, all things. So verse 20 culminates. And Paul just can't help but erupt in thanksgiving. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We have no idea who these people are, but uh, Paul's sending around greetings and, and abounding in thankfulness for the Philippians, and then it culminates in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Isn't that such a Pauline thing to do? Grace. Grace be with you. See, it's really a fitting way to end the letter, isn't it? We've seen throughout this time in our our time in Philippians, we've seen um, God show us various places where Paul is pursuing heavenly things. In fact, that's what he told us in chapter 3, that he's uh, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. See, the upshot of this passage is that Jesus enables us to both give and to receive with grace. Notice in our passage, it's the strength of Jesus 
that gave Paul the ability to receive the gift of, of the Philippians in verse 13. The secret of Paul's contentment in verse 13 is Christ. And in, in verse 19, it's the lavish riches of Christ that are the return for the Philippians' gift in verse 19. See, either way, in Paul's understanding of giving and receiving, Jesus is at the center of this gift-giving. For the receiver, it's strengthened with Christ so that I can love Christ more than the gift. For the giver, it's the reward that comes from Christ, from the riches of His glory. See, either way, Jesus is at the center of this reciprocal giving. He alone makes it possible. And we want to stop and we want to say, how? How does God make it possible for us to be strong in the midst of any circumstance so that we can give and receive with grace? How does uh, Christ strengthen us? How does Jesus' riches supply every need? And what we've seen is Paul said that he learned this, right? That he's learned this secret of contentment. It's not some mystical thing, is it, where our eyeballs just roll back into the back of our heads and all of a sudden we become strengthened and we do all the things that God wants us to do? Stop me if you've heard that before, haven't you? Is there some mystical theology out there where God just kind of takes over and my personhood is, is run over and God just does the thing that He wants? And, and by the way, if you're not succeeding, if you're not doing all things through Christ who strengthens you, you're the problem. You're the one who's failing. You're the one who's not adding up. You ever have that thrown at you? In fact, many of us... Have, these false notions that if we can do all things through Christ, our failures are a sign of spiritual weakness in us. But Paul is, is doing something different. Paul is giving an idea that is so strong that it causes us to not need the gift or not to cling to our possessions but freely give them away. And so here's the secret. He's already told it to us. If we go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul started this section, listen to what he says. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What's the secret of contentment? It's Christ. I want Christ. I need more Jesus. I need less of these things. I need more Christ. How do I give more Christ? How do I receive more Jesus? See, he told us that he forgets what lies behind. He presses on toward the upward call of God in Christ. See, for Paul, the grace of Jesus is so beyond any riches, any honor, any experience, anything this world has to offer that only Christ is worth the pursuit. In fact, it's not just Paul who emulates this life. Our Lord Jesus modeled this for us. It was Jesus who came and he modeled this priority of the Father's desire. He's constantly telling us, this is my Father's will. So much so that he often found himself at odds with the religious leaders of his day. 
Ultimately, it was his father's priority which led Jesus to Calvary. See, Jesus so valued his father's approval that he was willing even to die. In chapter 2, we saw that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross so that the Father might exalt him, that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue confess. See, this heavenly priority is what Jesus' death equips us to do. It's what this whole book of Philippians has been about. It's about eschewing kind of these earthly priorities, about preaching the gospel even when we have people that are detractors, about living out this fruitful life in Christ, about uh, considering others more important than ourselves, about forgetting what lies behind and pressing on toward what lies ahead. It's about valuing Christ over anything else that this life has to offer us. And Paul is just kind of bringing us into the sphere of our finances. See, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus equips us to be humbled like Christ. Might stop and say, okay, what's this mean for us? See, our financial giving tunes us into the priority of his kingdom. We started there, didn't we? You know, a mirror does two things. A mirror can show you what you look like, and it can motivate you to change. And our finances can do the same thing. Our finances can show us both what we prioritize, and it can also change us. It can also shape us and form us. So our financial giving reveals our true priority. You ever see an x-ray? An x-ray cuts through all the external things and gets to the internal reality of your body. And our finances also can kind of cut through all of the exteriors and show us our priority. Do we value fun? Your entertainment spending will be through the roof, right? That's what I would do with our money. I would waste it on Dave and Buster's or whatever the places are, right? That's why we have a wife. She's much better with this than I am. Do we value education? Guess what? You're going to spend money on books and and, uh, classroom fees and other things. You're going to seek every educational opportunity that's out there. Do you value? What do you value? Your, Your checkbook will show you what you value. The way you spend money or save money, those things show you what you value and what you desire. And when we give to Christian purposes, it reveals our desire for the kingdom. See, fundamentally, the Christian worldview says that I don't have to have all my pleasures now. I don't have to have everything right now. There's an abundant pleasure coming in God's presence. It's Psalm 16, right? You will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. We don't need pleasure right now because God is providing it for us in Christ. We're people of delayed gratitude. We, we save, we, we store, we, we give away because we have faith that Jesus is the one who blesses us. A few weeks ago, I had car problems. I was getting cut clutch put into my car. I think I know what that is, but I don't want to say it in front of people publicly. But we were having a job done, and, and it was going to take a couple days. So they gave me a rental car, and I jokingly said to the person, hey, that means I get to pick out whatever car on the lot I want, right? And she said, no, it doesn't work that way. 
But they gave me a car that's much nicer than the car I have. I was tempted to just go to Mexico and not come back. I drove it to Fort Wayne to pick up a piano. I had it for a number of days. I mean, it was just the nicest thing. You got in, and it just like felt like it wrapped itself around you. It was like a warm blanket. It had all the bells and whistles, like three million cameras. I don't even know how it got so many cameras on a car. It was really nice. My heart started to get used to luxury. Started to get used to just the nice feeling, the leather interior, the displays. Everything looked so nice. It sounded good. My wife and I were talking about it a few days later, and I would joke with the kids about how much I liked this car. I joked that when I dropped it off, I reached out and just touched it, and I said, we'll always have Fort Wayne. (laughs) But we started to talk about it, and we recognize, fundamentally, we don't want another car payment. We don't have a car payment right now. We don't have to make one. Praise God for that. But I started to think, "I I don't need that right now. It's not something I need. I literally drive five minutes to work. In a month's time, I would be bored with it. But right now, I don't need that luxury. Now, before you hear me say that spiritual people don't have nice cars, that's not what I'm saying. Some of you spend a lot of time in your car. You need consistency. I get that. So we can't assess the state of anyone's heart by the things they have. Let's just be careful about that. But in my heart, in that place, in that time, I needed to say, God, I don't need this. My, my money, my dollars would be better spent on your kingdom. And, and the things I own, the possessions I have, it would be better to spend something on something different that can be yours, that I can use for the sake of your kingdom. That, that reality had to kind of sink in with me. See, our financial giving, our spending, our our habits, they reveal the true priority of our hearts. But secondly, our financial giving changes our priority. When you give dollars to a cause, you become so much more invested in that cause. I remember being a 15-year-old kid and starting to see the charge for Social Security or FICA or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, I became so much more interested in what Social Security was, right? You don't care about what happens in the stock market until you started investing in the stock market. See, we are shaped by our dollars. Our dollars, the things that we give our dollars toward, actually shape our desires and our wants. And when we fund Christian purposes, Christian missionaries, Christian churches, other things, whatever we give toward, It shapes our desires. It makes us long for the kingdom, doesn't it? See, giving to Christian causes shapes our hearts to prioritize the kingdom. And so what we should do then is we should seek Christ, right? Christ, the one who strengthens us. Christ, the one who who is filled and and, uh, has all of the riches of his glory to give to us as we give. We should pursue Christ. We should value Christ so that our dollars fall in line with his spiritual priority. We should think about our rusty old minivan as God's 
purpose, an item that can be used for God's kingdom purposes in the world. We should think about our houses as an item that can be used for God's kingdom purposes in the world. We should think about our toothbrush and everything else that we own as how it submits to the lordship of Jesus and how it can better be used for his kingdom purpose in our world. That's what it is for us to cherish Christ, to see all things in that vein. As we close, David Livingston was a missionary in South Africa. And he says this. He says, I place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by giving or keeping it I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time or eternity. 66 years ago today, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and contingent of men traveled into an unknown, unreached people group to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Jim Elliott who said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Whether you recognize it or not, your dollars are going to be gone. If not now, sometime in the future. Give what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. Let it be a fragrant offering to our Lord, to our Savior Jesus Christ. I thank you that we can preach this message and we can do so out of the confidence that you all value. You've shown it in your dollars. But I want to pray that God allows us to be more gracious more giving, more gracious in receiving so that he can receive honor and glory in us. Lord, we pray through these things in Jesus' name. We pray that like him, we might be self-giving. We pray that like him, we might receive in a way that honors you. Lord, make us gracious givers and faith-filled recipients. Be honored in us as we do these things. Lord, I pray that our dollars represented here, our possessions, ourselves, might be leveraged for your kingdom and for your honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.